0: Hi everyone, welcome to this edition of the Innocence Project London podcast Um, and I'm joined today by um, my friend and colleague Gloria Morrison from the grassroots campaign organisation Jengba, which stands for Joint Enterprise Not Guilty by Association. Um, Gloria, welcome. Hello, Um, welcome. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) And um, do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about um, about Jenga? Okay.
1: Um, By association, we're um, about to celebrate our 10-year anniversary of when we launched the campaign, which is September 2010. Actually, Um, Mm -hmm. the reason we came together was just a group of mums mainly that uh, their, their loved ones have been convicted of murder, mainly murders, using joint enterprise. And back then there was very little information about what joint enterprise was. Um, if you Googled it, you would get a joint specialist in Australia dealing with the joints, but there's no- really? there was nothing... Yeah. Is yeah. that where it was? Yeah, well, I Googled it and there was this guy in Australia, because I didn't know. So my backstory is that uh, my son's best friend was convicted of a joint enterprise murder and he was like, not second son, but, you know, those of you got teenagers will know you have got ones that just come and stay a lot and that was that was Ken so he was in and out of our house a lot and he was my son's best friend so he got convicted of um, well charged with murder and I they didn't tell me at the beginning they told me halfway through so I didn't go to the trial cuz I didn't really understand what you know I I knew what he told me had happened there was a fight His friends had run out of a house. One of them had a knife, unfortunately used the knife, and there was a fatality. But Ken was the first person who was attacked, and he was um, semi-conscious on the floor when his friends have run out. So he hasn't got a knife, except in court. He didn't have uh, knowledge that they would come out and use a knife, but he still got convicted of that murder that uh, one of his friends uh, committed. So um, we're now... When we say grassroots, grassroots campaigns are campaigns that come out from the underground, that come out from people who have been ex- you know, experiencing it firsthand. No, it wasn't my son. Um, the person I first met was um, Janet Cunliffe, and her son was a 15-year-old blind child who didn't see the victim, didn't touch the victim, but was convicted of murder of um, Gary Newlove. And uh, Panorama made a documentary about our two cases and that's how Janet and I met and when I found out that we were locking up 15-year-old blind children using this doctor of a joint enterprise um, we we said we need a campaign so our campaign now like I said has been running for 10 years we're supporting over a thousand prisoners I still think that number's conservative uh, and their families um, you have a we have a big um, reach of families all across the country in Bradford, it's a target of the Asian community uh, a lot. Uh, Liverpool, Manchester, um, predominantly black and ethnic minority community groups. Um, that you're supporting in terms
0: of those who've been convicted. Convicted, yeah.
1: Um, Kenneth himself is a young West Indian boy.
0: And just for, for the benefit of listeners who might not know what joint enterprise is, so you have... Joint enterprise is, is common law, essentially, isn't it? So yep. it's kind of evolved through case law. Um, there is the notion of joint principles, so people are joint participants in a crime yeah. or in an offence, citic accessory liability, where you have two people or more. But for the for the example of the podcast, two people, uh, they both agree to commit one one crime, as it were. But in the course of committing that crime, one of them then goes on to commit something else, and the second person is is held liable for that other person's actions. Yeah. And it's that last one that I think has been the subject um, of court scrutiny yeah. in terms of the the crown um, against Jogi. But
1: but, but I would I, I mean I think listeners would be, would presume that you're right. If you've got two guys who're going to go out and burglar a flat, and something goes wrong, and one of them punches the the resident, and uh, that resident then dies, well, you know, wouldn't it be fair to say that both of them are culpable of that crime because they both um, gone on the burglary and there have been cases like that and, and in one particular case it's John Crilly where um, he has been the only person convicted of manslaughter but the, the problem we have with how joint enterprise has been developed and used over the years and then moved into parasitic accessorial liability because they think they're stupid and if they change the language people won't know what joint enterprise is because like I said when, when Ken was convicted there was nothing Nothing at all to you know a campaign setting up arguing that joint enterprise is wrong to then say well let's call let's call it parasitic or liability, but you know you could have a group of young people, which is a lot of our cases that you know might get involved in some kind of altercation, and one of that group goes beyond what anybody else foresaw that they were going to do now evidence prosecutions will say friends tell each other everything but it's been used into a way that it's, it's expanded. So it's like it's like a net. You just throw out the net. You sweep up as many people as possible. Even though you know there are
0: people in there are so peripheral that they're... they're the link is so tenuous yes. in terms of evidentially. To the point, I think, that if they had... If you were to separate out some individuals and they had separate trials, there would be no evidence against them. No actual evidence. No actual evidence, no tangible evidence. It would only be the fact that you can link these people to either a narrative, which we both see. Um, So from an Innocence Project perspective, I've got about three cases that hinge around joint enterprise and joint responsibility. And I think Gloria's seen it as well in terms of the gang narrative that is more often used... Um, but also, I think the notion of the group, the yeah. group being together in a certain place and a certain time. Yeah. And certainly in Leon Wilson's case, it's his car that linked him to be um, held jointly responsible for what someone else did. Um, and he never denied his car being there. He, he drove, he was out on an evening and it was his car. Someone drove his car there and he was driving the car back after the end of the evening. But it was the, the car was the link for him to the events of, of, of what ultimately led to his conviction Yeah,
1: and, and, and this is something else I've been saying I think again listeners will think well, you know, there's no smoke without fire or you, you wrong place, wrong time but you shouldn't have been in that place in the first place We've got cases where you've got a woman asleep in bed when her violent drug-dealing partner has killed a runner in the front room. She's heard by neighbours screaming. She's at the beginning taken to be into witness protection. And then she leaves, because she's a drug user, she leaves um, the safe house that she's in to go and score drugs. And then they charge her with joint enterprise murder. And she's serving 20 years. She didn't touch that victim. She didn't see that victim. In fact, she screamed when she realised her partner killed the victim. We've got other cases, you know. So there are cases we could go into that would take some time, but have a look at our website um, jointenterprise.co. It's it's so easy to to convict someone of something so heinous as murder using joint enterprise. You all you need to do is have some kind of association. That's why we call not guilty by association. And those associations can be not just tenuous; they can be you know the person doesn't need to be at the scene of the crime the person could have received a phone call from someone sometime before the crime we have a lot of family members that are serving life sentence for joint enterprise lots of brothers lots of cousins lots of we've got a mum and two sons we've got um a father and son that have spent 12 years in the same prison cell together neither of them have committed the the crime that's the stringer case so that that the, the, the evidence on our side now is too compelling too overwhelming to actually uh, substantiate the, the the legitimacy of joint enterprise charging, which brings us to Jogi.
0: So the Crown against Jogi um, happened in 2016, and um, listeners, you can Google the case. But essentially, it corrected the journey that um, joint enterprise had taken. Historically, it had always been considered that foresights. Of somebody's actions would um, be equal to somebody's intention so to the second defendant's intention and the Crown against Jogi sought to correct this in terms of saying that actually foresight can only be considered as evidence now of somebody's intention. Thought to be groundbreaking at the time but Mm. I mean really where from from your perspective where are we? post Jogie. Well,
1: I mean, we, we actually, we intervened in Jogie which, um, as a grass campaign campaigner, people think I, I understand the law. It was our lawyers saying, we need to intervene, we need to intervene. So we went to see Felicity Jerry, the QC, who got the case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court will only look at a, at a point of public interest, so Jogi, but it was, the second question was, does joint enterprise over-criminalise secondary parties? Now, as a campaign, we could intervene, because we were saying, yes, you've clearly over criminalised um and there were too many appeals going forward that you know like if you get convicted of a murder and you've committed a murder maybe you might try and wing it and take it to appeal but if you haven't committed murder and you're serving a life mandatory life sentence you're going to try to appeal it so there were too many appeals going back to the appeal court because people were saying well i haven't done this how can you convict me of murder that i haven't done so that's why uh, i believe jogi happened um And it was successful. It was apparently groundbreaking. It was uh, the law changed. They said the law had been taken a wrong turn in 1984 with Chan Su And, uh, you know, like Louise has said, you can't rely on foresight. Now, I've always said, give me the evidential bag of foresight that someone knew what someone else was going to do. Show me that evidence and then I will accept that joint enterprise is valid. But they can't. So anyway, they said that um, it's wrong that you have to now... Cases post-jogi have to prove what an individual's intention was. There's two things about that. But then they also said in paragraph 100 of the Supreme Court um, judgment that only cases that can prove, regardless of the fact that the law was wrong or has been wrongly interpreted for 34 years, only cases that can prove substantial injustice can therefore go back to the Court of Appeal. Mm -hmm. So that that little paragraph itself has stopped anybody getting their appeal heard we've taken a lot of cases back post-joggy to the court of appeal and every single one of them and cases that were clearly clearly the principals were not involved in the murder The, the really important one was that of laura mitchell girl looking for her shoes in a car park where six minute where there's an altercation about a taxi six minutes later someone else has chased another person from the attacking group to the other side of the car park two kicks second blow is fatal. By this time, Laura and a partner have left, gone home, um, where she's training to be a midwife. He's an electrician. They find out that there's been a, a, a murder in the car park. They take themselves to the police station to give their evidence of what they saw earlier on in that evening, and they both get charged with murder. They're both serving life sentences. Now, Laura, we took back to the Court of Appeal because how could she foresee what someone was going to do six minutes later on the other side of the car park? But this is where the language which um, Louise is talking about, um, Lady Haylett decided that actually that was conditional intent because she started a fight about a taxi. She had conditional intent to lead on to a murder that she had no idea that happened. So that's what we're up mm-hmm. against. If we're up against that kind of belligerence, that's the wrong word, I'd I could use corruption, but it's it, if you're up against that kind of attitude from the Court of Appeal where they're saying, oh, no, 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 she must have known he was going to run and chase somebody and kick him twice, mm-hmm. whereas you've got a case like Sally Channing, very pleased for Sally that she's been uh, convicted of manslaughter, but she did hit her husband 26 times with a hammer, but she gets her, her, um, her case reduced to manslaughter, whereas a girl who's looking for shoes in a car park is still guilty of murder. So... Where we are post Jogi is actually nowhere. Um, Jogi, in my opinion, now was actually a bit of a setup. It was to stop people going back to the Court of Appeal because Lord, some of the cases we took back to appeal afterwards, Lord Thomas was. Clearly, very angry about the cost. He kept saying about the cost. And Lord Thomas sat in the Supreme Court judgment. So he was part of that decision making to see, look, how do we put a plug on this? You know, we'd raised, as a campaign group, we'd raised the ugly head that joint enterprise was over criminalising innocent people and they needed a way to stop it because we want to believe that the British justice system is one of the best in the world. That is a complete fallacy, not just in joint enterprise cases, in the fact that if you get sent to prison, and you're convicted, you are nigh impossible able to overturn that conviction. Even if you win the lottery, it's so, so difficult because the justice system do not want to accept that they are making mistakes. Well, it's
0: like a one-way street, isn't it? And it feels very much like there was so much hope pinned on Jogi and the decision in Jogi. And it was at the time. I think all of us thought at the time. I I told you, I I actually
1: think it was cruel. I think Jogi was cruel because you had prisoners up and down the country, jumping up and down in their pads, had some hope, really thought, wow, this is it. We've done it. We're going to finally get at our day of court are going to get our day of justice? No, because of this is substantial injustice, because they deliberately had to put some kind of lid on it. And that's why every case we've taken back to the appeal court, they're saying no, no, no. They've knocked them all back because they do not want to set precedent with one. If you set precedent with Laura Mitchell, a girl who's looking for a shoes in a car park, you'll have other cases that can use the same arguments yeah, we'll and follow. come through, and then you'll have more cases coming through on appeal. This is worse than the Birmingham Six, it's worse than the Guildford Four because we've got hundreds, if not Thousands of prisoners sitting in cells for life that have not actually committed the crime they're in prison for.
0: You mentioned earlier you touched upon the case of John Crilly. Yeah. He's probably, probably the. I'm not right in saying probably the only. Yeah. One small success story that's yeah. kind of. Yeah,
1: but that was only. Out. That was only because, George, um, his John's um, trial lawyer was Lord Leveson, who was one of the Supreme Court judges, and. He actually said in his summing up, I know you did not share the intention. So this is another burglary case. John's a, a drug user. He's gone on a burglary with a guy he didn't really know to what they thought was a non-domicile house, but the uh, resident had sitting so so he didn't hear the doorbell being ring. They break in, and then his uh, co-defendant has punched this old man twice. Um, John leaves, they run away, and um, the, the, the man dies in his summing up Levinson says I know you didn't share the intention his intention was to burgle, not to to cause injury or harm to anybody so um because we had that actually in the defense I mean he wasn't happy about it Lord Lord (laughs) Levinson but they you know they offered John manslaughter and he he took manslaughter because under you know the advice of our our lawyers that that was the best thing he could do because he didn't want to risk another trial um because actually when Jogi, the Supreme Court, ruled that Jogi wasn't guilty of murder, the CPS still took him back for a retrial. And I went to that, with lots of campaigners, we went and watched that trial because obviously it was really, really important to the campaign. They jury still found him guilty of manslaughter and that didn't make any sense. The only evidence against him was one witness who came in and she was a... A hostile witness, she walked into court, she pointed at Jogi and said he should not be there, he didn't do anything that night, he is innocent. That was her, that was her evidence and he still got manslaughter.
0: We speak a bit, or we've spoken a bit about the language, the legal language that's used. Joint enterprise cases are confusing, they're convoluted, a lot of them. They're the people that are on the receiving end of joint enterprise in terms of Innocence Project clients and your inside campaigners often lead sometimes chaotic lives. Oh, yeah. And then by virtue of of that sometimes, on occasion, the joint enterprise, the event that they're accused of being part in, is often chaotic and difficult to understand the Mm. process of. So how much do you think that, in joint enterprise cases, the language that's used to the jury really matters in terms of them being given clarity about do they really understand the case that they're deliberating on no
1: i don't think i don't think the jurors understand it i don't think the defendants understand it i think we have highly educated prosecutors oxbridge and cambridge who use quite archaic language to couch their case they always use similar phrases um uh, uh, but defense barristers tell me the same they use similar, you know, language, but it's, you know, they move, if it's the gang narrative, they've moved in a pincer movement or a wolf pack or, you know, they use this kind of very inflammatory language, which not only I think is quite archaic, it's, you know, we're still, like Louise mentioned, this is common law. So they're still basing stuff on 18th century law. In fact, even in the Supreme Court, it went right back to um, the idea of a cart race. So there was these case brought up about this these two guys having a cart race in, in 1785 or so I'm making that date up but and the two of them um, one of them kills a pedestrian so that becomes the beginning of joint enterprise because they're both uh, you know in a reckless endeavour so that is still applicable to bring it forward to the 21st century where you've got language that includes well he's texted her earlier or he's had a you know you've got mobile phone link Mm -hmm. god forbid if you like rap music or if you like because that is often if it's a young group of black men or a young group of people in the dock and they have any propensity to like you know they've got youtube footage of rap music that will come up even if they're not even in the video. They will show that the prosecution will say, Well, look, because you know, get the feds, kill the feds, this means that they actually have murderous intent. Mm. Well, how does it? This these are young people that you can't actually work out what they're gonna be like in ten years' time anyway. But
0: But it's that gang narrative that yeah, we go back to yeah. again. We see I've seen at least one of the cases that we're working on, that of Conroy Smith, that it was almost it was the the assertion by the prosecution that he was a member of a gang. There was actually nothing There was no evidence that proved he was. And in fact, a couple of the witnesses turned around and said that he wasn't. Yeah. Um, But but he's a black
1: Jamaican. But he's a black Jamaican.
0: And the assertion was there. And that was it. That was sufficient then to plant that in their minds. And
1: then, and how do you that? This is one of the, the sort of feedback things we get from a lot of prisoners. How do you argue with that? Jordan Cunliffe, when he was in the dock, was told by the prosecution that he would not have to... They didn't need a medical expert to explain his eye eye condition, which is cornucotis, which is really unusual in a 15-year-old boy. It normally happens to people older in life, and he was on the transplant register waiting for a cornea transplant. So they said, you don't need a medical expert to to do that. We'll we'll give them the jury the uh, paperwork. The prosecution opened with Jordan Cunliffe saying, you're lying about being blind, aren't you? You can see. Now, how is a 15-year-old boy in a courtroom, a grown-up courtroom, an adult courtroom, going to refute that? How would you, as an adult, how would you refute and say, well, I'm not, I'm blind, or I'm going blind unless I get this transplant. Um, but the other language they use, often people say they don't, they don't recognise who they're talking about, the prosecutors, especially in these multi-handed cases. So you can see how confusing this could be if you've got... We've. I've been to a case where there were nine people in the dock, and you know they they they're going to think well someone's done something because you know especially if there's been a fatality and no one's owning up and or it goes thro- cutthroat by the by the defence which is often often the case someone's done something we need to find you know give uh, appease the victims here because the victims are always sitting opposite the jury if you go to the Bailey the victims' family are there. Which I haven't got a problem with, but you know, actually a lot of our prisoners are victims too. A lot of our prisoners are rabbits in the headlight, yeah. don't know how to get out of it, don't know how to present evidence to prove that they didn't foresee what someone else was gonna do. But
0: that's the key thing, isn't it? Is the evidence. Yeah. Because actually in a in and I keep going back to the the, the two cases of Leon and Conroy, two separate cases, but actually if Without them being brought together under the principle of joint participation, joint enterprise, there was the evidence was so limited against them yeah. singularly. So on a trial with them alone, there was very, very little to be held against them. Yet collectively, yeah. that joint argument stood up yeah. a lot stronger.
1: So I mean Which is why one of the reasons we've been saying that joint enterprise is clearly racist. It's clearly a racist doctrine that has been allowed to perpetuate through the courts. Not just since 1984. It's, it's, you know, and right now it, it's actually rife, and it will, and it's still being used, and they're still using joint enterprise besides parasitic exculpable liability because I don't think juries they'll be going uh uh uh, and even these route to verdicts. I mean, the juries are presented with a route to verdict which says if you believe that the defendant A knew that defendant B go to defendant C. I mean, the route to verdicts I think are very complicated if you haven't got a legal background. Now we're talking about jurors that are from different walks of life so how they would understand the complexity of a joint enterprise case when me as someone who's been involved in them for years and years now and have seen case papers and files and know the cases that Louise is talking about I still can't work out how people come to the conclusions they've come to I just don't know and and defendants tell us that they actually feel like they're they're the ghost in the dock because there's no evidence Mm. on them so that we call them the caspers there's no the friendly there's no evidence on them so there's nothing really to tie them you know no evidential evidence to really to link them to the crime but when it comes to the judges summing up they become often mr big they become the orchestrator yeah yeah. they become the person because there's no actual evidence on. so what we're going to do is say you've called it on Mm. you're the organizer even though that they, especially actually, if they're not there, we've got a case where a boy's in prison. He's got, he's just got two weeks shy of it for an offence he has done. Two weeks shy of it. He's phoned his brother on a legal mobile phone. There's a shooting in Sheffield. That boy for that phone call gets 34 years. I was talking to their mum the other day. 34 years for that phone call because they said he has called it on. Her other son's also serving a 31. And the evidence against them is so flimsy that they could have got there in Medal Hall in Sheffield. If they could have got to the site and changed into black palav- balaclavas and clothing, it's almost nigh impossible. But they're just going to say, yep, you're all part of a gang.
0: I know, because collectively they can bring them together. Yeah. And that's what, this, uh, that's what this, this does. Yeah, This principle does. And I
1: don't think people, one, don't know about it. Two, kind of when they hear about it, just think, no, that can't be happening in England. We don't do that in oh, this no, country.
0: But as I tell my students it is so easy especially for them as young people to be caught up in it and they can be on the periphery of something one day and then before you know it they've been drawn into it and i i do i call it lazy investigating because i think well you've got sometimes you've got such large groups of people and but just by using that phrase joint enterprise joint responsibility you can bring them all together when you know for well or the police know for well there's not singular evidence that would go that would stand up in a single trial for that individual
1: but the other thing I mean we know happens and this is really sad because it's not like the idea of one bad apple but say in the case of Jordan Cunliffe the investigating officer in that case went on to be the chief of police of Manchester Police and that's Peter Farhi and Jan his mum stood up and asked Peter Fari in one of these open sessions, did you know my son was blind? Well, rock and a hard place, because if he said yes, I knew he was blind, he put a blind kid in prison for something he didn't do. Or if he said, no, I didn't know he was blind, because if he didn't know that he was blind, then the jury surely didn't know he was blind. You know. So what I'm saying is, these cases, if you get a result, and it shouldn't be about getting a result, because if you undermine the justice system, as fundamentally as this and people lose trust in it, and we will keep going. It doesn't matter, you know, that we didn't... We thought we had a result after Jogi, but we haven't, and we're now getting more and more cases, especially since the lockdown. They ha- you know, we're going to have a spike in knife crime, and it doesn't really matter if you, you didn't have the knife, but if you knew he carried a knife, then you... you know, And people might think, oh, well, that's OK, because, you know... And, and I asked Lord Tulson, who was one of the Supreme Court judges, a seminar thing I did... Um, after Jogi and I said, "Why did you put in para, you know, paragraph one hundred, the substantial injustice test?" And he said, "Oh, because." And this is his exact words. Rest in peace. He's dead now. But he did say, um, "Oh, because um, the commentators will be saying that killers will, co- the commentators would say killers will be let loose." Now, the commentators he's talking about is the Sun and the Mail and the right-wing press. Not the commentators who are actually saying. Actually, that was a good decision that boy didn't kill anybody, that boy didn't even touch the victim, he should be, you know, he should be released. And But not that people care about it, but the public purse, I mean, the cost of keeping someone like Jordan Cumliffe it, mm-hmm. he had to go to a secure centre at the beginning of his, tr- of his case because he was blind and no one could deal with him in the prison system. Um, that's a quarter of a million pounds a year to keep a child in a secure centre. Why are we sending children to prison anyway? You know, like, surely... If a child does commit something really, really bad, really heinous, then they need a lot of psychiatric help or or emotional help. They don't need to be put in a prison where they're going to come out more damaged, if they come out, more damaged than when they went in.
0: Gloria, I could talk to you all day, and I think the the issues with Joint Enterprise aren't going to go away. I think they're here to stay. Listeners, um, Google Jengba, Joint Enterprise Not Guilty by Association, There's a lot of stuff on their website. They are very active in their activism. Um, Follow us on Twitter, at Jengba. And we, Innocence Project London, works quite closely with them um, and are big supporters in terms of kind of a lot of the things that they get involved in. So do educate yourself with them. And Gloria, it's been a pleasure. Thank Thank you. you very much. Thank you, Louise. Thank you.